Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and with me is my lovely co-host, The Chattering Teacup. Hello. And we also have another guest. Hi. Hi. J.R. Pomerantz. Hello. J.R. Pomerantz from or in Maryland, is that correct? Yes, Silver Spring. And first of all, the most quintessential question for you, since it's very, very early on your end. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Coffee all the way. Two cups around me. <laughs> full with coffee or full. empty? Brimming full. full. Okay. Question number two. Printed books or e-books? Oh, boy. This is a tough one. I got to really meditate on this for a while. Uh, you, you know, I'm going to say printed. I'm going to say printed. There's something about it. But uh, I don't want e-books to feel betrayed. I, I still, I'm with them too. Let's say both. Can I say both? Yes, of course. And the last one, chocolate or crisps? Oh, chocolate. No contest. <laughs> <laughs> A question I wanted to ask you, because when I think back on my days as a student, I hated it. And it is your hobby, <laughs> knitting. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm terrible at it. I'm, uh, I think I'm using it as an exercise in failure to try to become more comfortable <laughs> with failing repeatedly over and over again and uh, trying to be enthusiastic about it anyway. It's a, it's a metaphor for life. <laughs> Did you have to do it at school? Uh, no, no, I didn't actually. I tried learning from relatives and um, that, yeah, that might be the difference between being uh, resigned to it and actively hating it is, you know, I was never quite quite forced. So uh, I, I have a kind of a struggling piece with it. Because we were forced to do it yeah. at school. So I can only say not uh, fun. never again. Is it part of the standard uh, Austrian curriculum? Yeah, at least well, it was nice. Our time. Yes, it, no, it wasn't nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, really, because now you know how to make your own clothes. I feel like that's no, you know, I have no way idea. better than geometry or anything no, else. No, no, you don't. Really? It, it, it sounds that way, but don't. The only useful things we ever did in the those classes was knitting socks and a cap yeah and oh, I that sounds great yes but i hated it i positively Aww. hated it and i think my grandmother knitted most of my socks and everything right. else and the other things were just yeah useless the third thing that was useful was an apron we were sewing an apron for our cooking lessons they're also part of the curriculum so that were the only three useful things we ever did. I, I never, I think I never finished anything we started during we did. These, these lessons. Maybe my mother finished something, but I never did. Oh yeah, I did. Well, I mean, I guess they taught you about suffering. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. Which is a great, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of suffering lessons in, in the yes. education. And I wasn't even in a Catholic school. You were in a Catholic school. Yep. I wasn't even in a Catholic school. But the curriculum uh, was the same? Yeah, the curriculum I mean, is the same. Yeah, it's the same, so didn't matter. So another important question, or maybe it's a question where we leave the secret. Is it even a secret? What does the J and what does the R stand for? It, yeah, it's a secret. Oh. Uh, so the, the J actually does just stand for J and okay. the R just stands for R. Okay. But you can call me J. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Shall we dive in? Yeah, sure. So your recently published work was a short story with the title Rats in a thriller anthology called Make Them Pay. And what can you tell us about this short story and also uh, maybe a little bit about the thriller anthology? How did it all happen? Yeah, th thanks. That's a, that's a great question because it, it was a real success and early success for me, which can take a long time in writing. <laughs> But um, 
So the story, Rats, it was created for a thriller anthology edited by Craig Martell. Craig Martell is the uh, administrator and leader, fearless leader of um, the Facebook group 20 Books to 50K, which is a a self-publishing forum for new writers. So, you know, uh, when I started writing my my first novel, it was two and a half decades ago (laughs) and publishing looked a lot different. Everything looked a lot different. You know, I always thought that I would go to a mainstream publisher. But as I got closer and closer to finishing it, and I started the querying process, and I had already gotten so far along with things like the cover and a website and design and and thinking about the characters and how the novel would unfold. Just the idea of not having creative control over that and of um, also being on the mainstream publishing timeline really started to get to me. And luckily, by the time... (laughs) two and a half decades had passed, uh, self-publishing had really come up in a big way. And so I found the self-publishing group through through Facebook and and um, Craig Martell had started to put together anthologies, uh, I think a couple of years ago, and he'd had a number of really successful runs. Uh, and so when I heard about the thriller anthology, I thought, you know, my best bet for success with my first couple of novels would be if I could get a story into this anthology. Uh, and it's it's put me in with, with a number of established and, and very successful self-publishing published authors, uh, including Craig. So that was really exciting. And it it all came about at the very end of last year and then turned around very rapidly. And and the book's out now. uh, So Make Them Pay is available on Amazon and and you can get an ebook or a printed copy. It's in Kindle Unlimited too. And could they keep to schedule because of the pandemic or was it postponed? Well, one thing about Craig that I've noticed is he's he's an ex-Marine. And so (laughs) schedules are very, very, very important to him. And also... uh, achieving things that he sets out to do doesn't really seem to be a problem. So um, he planned and executed as far as I know exactly exactly on time and uh, everything happened just just as he said it would. He's uh, he's a real real machine so no problems there. <laughs> Pandemic doesn't scare him. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anything scares him actually. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. I'm also wondering since it states on your homepage that you traveled a lot and you moved around a lot and And you also say that your life adventures or your real life adventures uh, inspired your stories. Is that also true for rats? In a sense, yes. Although uh, I haven't really done any uh, laboratory research on rats. Uh, Sometimes I may have felt as if I were a lab rat, but uh, (laughs) no no science background. That part took a lot of research. I've never been texted by my boss with a threat that they were going to blow up my laboratory. So all of that was uh, imagination and extrapolation. But I did, for that story, pretend that I needed to know what driving a Porsche was like. And so I did go to a racetrack and try to drive a Porsche very fast around it, which I claimed was book research and then I was forced to put it in the in the story so that it <laughs> that could be true. <laughs> and how does it feel to drive a Porsche very fast? Uh, it, it felt pretty good, actually. It felt pretty good, uh, especially after, uh, you know, uh, nearly a year of of, uh, of lockdown and sitting inside and not really doing much or going anywhere, even driving in circles felt made you feel like you, you were <laughs> headed somewhere. So just for research, you probably have to drive a Ferrari to to compare them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And definitely a Lambo. I mean, if yeah. you're not going to do the full, you know, yeah. the, the major the major cars, then are you even a writer? I don't know. <laughs> Is there something like method writing? Mm, I don't know. Is there? Because yeah. uh, method yeah, there acting and 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them, I I actually don't have a very good imagination. So uh, I'm not good at at description or creating things that don't exist that I, that I've, uh, or that I've not seen. So I do actually have to go through quite a bit in order to get it into my novels. So like for instance, the, um, the camel travel and corporate tourists need not apply that, that my first novel, that, that was all based on actual camel travel that I had done. Where did you travel on camel? There was uh, an opportunity to travel through the Great Tar Desert in in India, and so that's that's where, which is true to the book, also actually. Teacup, you had a question. I interrupted you. Sorry. No, uh, I just want to know because you say you traveled a lot and you moved quite a few times. If it was in your adult life or during your adolescence, and if it was of your own free will or the chances <laughs> just uh, opened. So I was born and raised in New Jersey, also where my first novel, uh, Corporate Tourists Need Not Apply, is set, and I had a, a total stable life. Kudos to the people that raised me. <laughs> and uh, then once I graduated high school and got through my first year of college, that's when I started moving. And uh, and I moved to New Mexico for university. And how did you end up in Kabul, if I may ask? Yeah, yeah. So that was that was a working working uh, situation. I, I got a job with the government of Afghanistan and worked a six month contract there for them. Oh, okay. And that's also where my second novel, uh, Love in the Time of the Improvised Explosive Device, is set. Which brings me actually to the next question or to your books, to your first book, which was published or which came out in June 2020. Yes. And what can you tell us about it? Or what what about the main character or the main protagonist? And what is it all about? I suppose since you mentioned the expression climate fiction, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. I suppose it plays a big part in at least the first one, but also I think in the second one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the first two novels, also Rats and also a couple of other uh, short stories, they're all based in the same so-called cinematic universe. And uh, while it's not strictly a series, it, it does all relate and it has similar characters with some overlap. Mm-hmm. So Corporate Tourists Need Not Apply is my first novel. This this is the big one, the one that took me uh, 24 years to, to complete. Not indicative of how long novels will take me in the future. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, when you, you want to get the first one right. And how long did the second one take? The uh, second one was about four years. So so I had uh, I called Corporate Tourists Done uh, because I didn't know anything about writing. And so then I assumed I would, you know, query a couple of agents and somebody would take it right away and sell it for millions of dollars so I could stop working on it and move on to the second, which I did. And then the more I learned about writing, the more I realized uh, that the book wasn't done and I still didn't really know how to write a novel. And I had actually not yet written a novel and I had to struggle many, many more years in order to achieve that through editing and and other processes. So I did. But then that that brought me to the happy uh, conclusion of being able to publish both in a relatively short amount of time all last year. Corporate Tourists, it's a it's a near future cli-fi action adventure comedy. This mouthful is required so that people on Amazon know what they're getting into. It's in the same vein as Kurt Vonnegut. It's got the tone of Douglas Adams. It, it's a around the world romp. It's also um, written in, in a satirical form. That's the purpose of the subtitle. Climate fiction is, is science fiction based on climate change, uh, major climatic events. It's been around for a long time, but um, 
I think the phrase cli-fi is, is relatively recent. A lot of famous authors have, have entered the space. Uh, Margaret Atwood is the big one that comes to mind. A lot of post-flood work also. I did not read her post-flood work because when I found out that that's what she wrote, I became so concerned that I would read her work and quit writing my own because I could never approach her genius that I, I held off on reading anything that she had written so that uh, I wouldn't get discouraged. <laughs> But now I'm back and I'm going to read everything she's ever done. <laughs> and would you also say that your books fall into the dystopian genre a bit or not? Or not at all? You know, I don't look at them in that way. And I can't say that there's a reason for that. But I, I think it's because when I think of my book, when I started thinking of it, I started thinking of it just being standard conditions for Northeastern United States. If there were a major tsunami event, a major, a major flooding event that was so impactful that it, that it really damaged a significant portion of New Jersey and parts of New York. And then how would people react to that? And what would things look like 20 years after that? And so it's really not that much of a fiction to me. I tried researching it. I, I talked to a lot of people. I, I um, you know, I looked at uh, climate change maps to try to see where if the ocean levels did rise, what that would look like. And then I extrapolated that to, to be the effects of this tsunami that the book alludes to in the opening chapters. But the book doesn't doesn't start there. It starts 20 years later. And so people have recovered, but in this um, you know, in this kind of uh mediocre and crappy way where food isn't as available and people don't move around as much and, and things are are different, not in a, a full dystopian way, but but just in a in a noticeable way. Noticeable to people who knew what life was before the flood, but not to the main character, Alice. Alice has no idea what she was missing for the most part because she was two or three when when the the flood happened so all she's ever really known is life with uh with a headset on a headset is a device that they can use to locate you in case of flood so people have started using them and they keep this device on on their face and in their ear at all times so that they could be located if there were another tsunami event and she's used to eating food out of a 3d printer that doesn't seem bizarre to her until she realizes that there are other options out there in, in the world which she She's, she and everybody else have kind of been led to believe doesn't exist. They believe that, that it had been wiped out. And so when she finds that there are other options, that people can grow food and that people can um, live life without a, a consumer electronic device attached to their head, it's a real revelation for her. In that sense, I think this book is also really a, a coming of age story about learning truth for yourself. And you also said They are both actually a little bit of a comedy. So my question would be, how important is humor in such a situation? Well, for me, humor is life. And I think every every good crisis situation deserves a lot of jokes. I know that's not always the prevailing view, but uh, that's what's always gotten me through a bit of a hassle. You know, my idea of what's funny <laughs> isn't necessarily the universal view of what's funny. Uh, so I, I think if you find his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy funny, if that was a book that you, you grew up reading, anything by Douglas Adams. If you liked David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, not for the length or the length of the sentences or the density, because I'm actually the opposite of that. Or, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's way of writing um, about climate and about natural disasters, thinking of books like Slaughterhouse-Five. I think it's very much along those lines. Some of the things you show in your books remind me of today because these 
oculus, so they have in front of their eye, it reminds me of these Google glasses and so on. Mm-hmm. And when you write about people um, eating the cups or from, right. with the coffee, uh, after they drank the coffee. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of having to go zero waste because you have this constant flooding situation and you can no longer bury your garbage, which is what the U.S. has relied on. You know, I had just read Infinite Jest when I started this book. It was 1996. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have the internet. 3D printing hadn't been invented yet. Google Glasses didn't exist. But I must have read you know, like a popular science magazine or something, you know, because it was easy to see what was on the horizon. It, it always is. And uh, like I said, I don't have a good imagination. So I had to update the technology in the in the book three times over the 24 years, because when I started writing it, the major technological development in the US was digital television. So people could no longer just use their analog televisions anymore. They had to move to digital. And that's what gave me the idea that in the future, if you were a marketer, you could send commercials to specific people targeting their demographic, and you could try to shape the way they thought based on doing that. And I thought, you know, I was super smart for coming up with that, but I did not invent that. Uh, marketers have always done that ever since their marketing's existed, which is, you know, probably thousands of years by now. <laughs> so, and I didn't anticipate anything like the smartphone or most of the technology we did actually wind up getting and using. But the the idea of, you know, marketing in alignment with political campaigns to make people think they saw something that they didn't and these kinds of tactics, that I thought would be a really interesting situation for the future. And so that's um, that's what I put as the backdrop to corporate torsos. Isn't it the case that fiction sometimes even inspires also technology? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's happened <laughs> but I don't know if it's going to come from me <laughs> I, uh, I, I was trying to think of ways actually to de-escalate technology especially in my own writing career you know I'm, I'm trying to use Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and I'm thinking about getting on TikTok I'm going to start my own booktube show and then I was thinking you know what what if I just don't do anything and I just start publishing books that are real and printed and that's it. Maybe maybe that's what the next popular thing is. But uh, I know anybody, anybody else will say, uh, make your own NFT. <laughs> that's the next thing. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to use all this social media. But on the other hand, you need it to promote yourself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you also mentioned something about uh, creating your own genre or your a new genre like new espionage, because you said you read a lot of spy novels. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was really, uh, so I learned to read really uh, too young, around two years old. And uh, I was a voracious reader from that time up until I started writing this novel and then I stopped. So I read everything I could from, you know, age of two to 16. A lot of what I was interested in were spy novels. And so I spent one time I spent a, a whole summer reading, you know, like Robert Ludlum, uh, Born, Born Ultimatum, books like that. And then at the end of the summer, I had become a bit of a misogynist. And I thought, you know, like, oh, this woman surely can't do anything. She'll just get, you know, kidnapped and get in the way. And it was I had 
had really beamed the um, the plot lines of every single thriller novel that I had read right into my brain at an impressionable age. I wanted to create something for this moment that had all the international flavor and all the excitement and adventure and figuring things out, the mystery, the intrigue of an espionage novel. But I wanted to leave out everything that they had in the 80s. So this kind of misogyny, the racism, the xenophobia, the, um, you know, the the Russians were always the enemy. It was like uh, the books really had an agenda and they didn't, they didn't really invent anything that wasn't already going on or like um, the nuclear sub code plot over and over again. I wanted something that that was just a little a little more creative, a little bit better than that. Something that could have more of a universal scope, something that was a little more just a, a little more fantastic, a little more uh magical and that involved maybe an enemy that you wouldn't have considered and and that was a little more surprising. And so that's what new espionage is. It's about trying to have the adventure and leaving out all the all the stuff that espionage uh, genre has so that people can can be more included and so that you know you don't have to be you don't have to have all your limbs to travel and i really wanted that to be obvious in the books but i think i think it takes more work to write something new than um make a different copy of something that's already written yeah yeah it's been a real uphill battle <laughs> <laughs> And will continue to be. But, you know, I'm also thinking that that it's going to be big and it's going to really have a place in about five, 10 years and that there's going to be a huge market for it. And that I need to start thinking about publishing, mm -hmm. you know, the next generation of adventurers and, you know, people that have been stuck inside for a year have had a lot of time to think about who they are, who they want to be, you know, where they want to go to think about traveling. And so I think the book came at a good time in that it offers you an adventure at a time that you might not have been able to leave the house, but that when it's possible to leave the house again, people are going to going to want to see a lot and do a lot and also read about those kinds of experiences. So uh, I'm hoping in the long term to be able to publish the the next voices and that now that I'm, I'm learning about the publishing business. And you said you didn't want to put the usual suspects in your book. So mm -hmm. which means you had to be a bit more sinister. <laughs> I did. I, I tried to I tried to pick somebody that I hadn't seen as a villain in any other book or movie that I had ever encountered or heard of. And so uh, I, I think I picked the least likely suspect. I, I won't say who it is. Uh, and uh, I'll leave that to to the, the readers to find <laughs> and to judge and tell me if I did a good idea. Maybe, you know, maybe this is somebody else's villain and I didn't know about. Yeah, but who knows? It sounds very sinister. <laughs> You also wrote a screenplay in stage plays. Am I correct? So I'm work. I have a couple in the pipeline. They're not. They're not completed yet. I was wrapping up corporate torsos, and I. I was almost almost done with it, and I just needed a little help to get over the finish line. I hired a book coach. I found a book coach and I, I was just desperate to be done with it. You know, it had been 20 years. I'd been calling myself a writer. Uh, I hadn't published anything since college. People were starting to look at me like, who are you and what are you doing? And how do you even call yourself a writer? You know, I'm talking about the novel constantly for 20 years. So I started to feel like a bit of a failure. And I, I hired this book coach that I found online and she said, yeah, no problem. Three months, we're gonna, we're gonna get this all done. And I have an agent and I'll run it by them. You 
know, you'll probably have a book deal immediately. Perfect. So I sent her a big chunk of money. And then I think it was the next day, the Los Angeles Times broke the story that she was a famous con artist. (laughs) And she'd gone through a few different names. She'd had uh, like some kind of voting snafu. She worked for a political campaign. And then she cheated a few other organizations out of some money. She started uh, this book coaching con. She had uh, created a writer's retreat and then not shown up to it. So she turned out to be a serial con artist. And of course, I was easily taken in by her. And uh, so I'm writing a screenplay based on that. And it's called Book Midwife. It's in the style of a lifetime television movie where, you know, the protagonist is an author and she comes in in contact with the unsavory book coach who, uh, well, let's just say makes her makes her life a living hell, which thankfully didn't happen to me. But, uh, you know, I know a lot of people were were harmed by the cons. And I, I think that the writing business, because writers are <laughs> generally trusting people and do need a lot of help along the way, writers are easily conned. And so that's a, there's an adjacent article that I'm writing in alignment with the book midwife screenplay called The Right Con about this kind of, uh, kind of activity. But at least you got something out of it. I did. <laughs> and I like the title, Book Midwife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds nice, right? But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds also intriguing because the yeah. idea, I like yeah, the, the idea. title is a con too. Yeah. Yeah. And just imagine that it's written in that like drippy kind of scary font. So you, so you mm-hmm. know what you're getting with the, with the screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> and did you also, before the pandemic, go to events like, I don't know, sci-fi writing event for readers and authors where you could, uh, say, pitch your book to an agent? I did. I did pitch. So I went to the Washington Writers Conference early on, well, early on, early on in my, the book is almost completed, but not quite days. And so I was just trying to drum up some interest in it. And so I did go to Washington Writers Conference and I pitched to a series of agents and and I did get one or two uh, inquiries, but then really nothing, nothing came of that. And I started to see more clearly that the timeline on mainstream publishing doesn't allow you <laughs> that kind of gratification, even within a year or two. And also I think it was Washington Writers conference where there was a panel of, of, uh, of mainstream published writers who told you the ins and outs of, of what happened to them, how you really don't get to pick your own cover. And if there are any changes that they think need to be made, you have to do it and things like that. Things that, uh, you know, I want to micromanage my own process and, and I want to uh, have, have control over it. So that's when it really started to look like mainstream publishing wasn't going to be the right route for me. But um, the conference was amazing and I'm looking forward to uh, attending Craig Martell's self-publishing conference, the 20 Books to 50K conference, which is scheduled for November in Las Vegas. So hopefully we'll all be out and vaccinated and and able to attend. So that'll be my first post-publication conference that I appear at. And will you be on a panel? Uh, No, I won't be on a panel, I don't think, although I'm available. So Craig, if you hear this, uh, (laughs) go ahead and put me on a panel. Happy to talk. And uh, I, I will be doing a signing there. So if you're listening to this and you're in the Vegas area in November, come by and say hi and uh, get a copy of, I'll have corporate torsos signed. I'll have make them pay with a little signature. And um, hopefully by then I'll have a paper copy too of uh, Love in the Time of the Improvised Explosive Device. And uh, during this last year, were those conferences also 
online? Because, I mean, not also just online. Was there any event you attended online? Except for readings. There's a local readings monthly that uh, Hannah Grieco runs here called Readings on the Pike. But other than that, the conferences, for the most part, were, were just canceled and not. I don't think that there were any virtual options this year. Uh, it was really a, a year for you to just focus on your writing. You know, I did through the Shaman Agency, I did attend a couple of workshops, one with the memoir author, Alexander Chi, and then another one with the poet, uh, Carl Phillips. But other than that, you know, it was pretty quiet as far as the conferences go. I think this year there's going to be more online, I think, including Washington Writers Conference. You said you like to micromanage the publishing of your book. So, which means, I suppose, that both your books self-published? Yes, yes. What, in your opinion or in your experience now that you've published two books, was the most challenging part of doing so? Well, you know, I'm considering the whole thing uh, a beta test up to up to now, up to and including now as far as the publishing of it goes, because I really, um, I set the deadline on completing the novel, but then I didn't even really make that known to myself what I meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'd hired an editor, a professional editor, She was amazing, Mariko Hewer, for my first novel. And then even right up to the publication date, I had this kind of um, stage fright about a few of the elements of the book. And so I went back and edited after my editor had edited, which <laughs> is a no, that's a, that's, you don't do that. <laughs> that's not the path to success, but I did it anyway. And I have to live with that choice. And then I published after that. And so then I learned the hard way about publishing typos into your own work. And so then I had to retract that and uh, create a second edition of the book, which was pretty easy to do in self-publication, but I, I don't think any mainstream publisher would have put up with me or that. And so um, that was a real learning experience. And so I'm trying out Amazon, which is a, a great service in that you can print on demand. So you don't actually have to fill a warehouse full of your books ahead of time and then live with them later on if it doesn't sell. And that part I like, you know, there are probably also some advantages advantages to getting out under from the long Kraken arms of Jeff Bezos that uh, I'm now exploring in uh, in a wider publication and in thinking about uh, translations, publishing in other markets and things like that. So it has all been a, a learning experience, but I'm still working on it, I'll have to say. And as you said, that publishing world has changed. Do you think it has changed for the better in the last two decades? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Hands down. I think mainstream publishing for a long time. Well, I don't, I don't know how it is in Europe, in your market, but in the United States, there were voices and stories that couldn't get through. They couldn't get into mainstream publishing. And that continues to be the case. And, you know, there's a situation where, where publishers can not, not afford to back something that they don't think is going to be profitable. And they mm -hmm. have really formed concrete ideas about what's profitable. So something that's new or different or not yet been presented before might not always get through. And, and then there's there's also, you know, a, a finite number of things that they publish. Self-publishing really blows that whole model out of the water. And if you have the drive to work on it, you can you can get your story out there with a minimal amount of uh, investment. And so it really democratizes the field. Now with Amazon, you know, you're in this situation where you, you have to pay tribute in order to appear <laughs> at a certain level in the rankings or to 
have advertising or to be shown to potential readers. So, you know, I'm just thinking about like the CEO to Smashwords. He gave his state of the union in, in self-publishing this year. And he said, you know, if you if you have to pay X thousands of dollars in order to even come up in a search, then is that a real democratic way of, of presenting authors? But there's always been these barriers. And I think a clever author will be able to overcome them. So I, I'm going to say it has changed for the better. Some are quite su successful as self-published authors. Do you think that readers consider self-published book different than books published by a um, big publisher? Well, you know, uh, that's an interesting question. I think uh, in most cases, people might not even be able to tell the difference. So if you've if you've gotten a, if you've hired a graphic designer and you you've had a cover designed for all your novels, which I did, then it's not really obvious in the thumbnail that appears to people when they search for something to read. And so I think as long as you followed the basic principles of putting out an excellent book, you know, if you've tested it and you've had beta readers look at it and you've edited it and you didn't put in a bunch of changes after the edit the way I did initially, <laughs> you know, you you got it all together. You've got you've got the workings of a great story. Then I, you know, I think that readers are going to respond to that no matter what. But I also think that if you take that and you pair it with creating your own genre, then you've really made an uphill battle for yourself <laughs> and that you you have to be prepared to spend more time ju just telling people what, what it is that you're offering. And, and that's really, I think, the best part of marketing is if you can actually use that time to connect with somebody and tell them what why it is that you know this is an important story. If you're looking for the immediate millions in, in publishing dollars, <laughs> then you might be a little disappointed initially. But if you're interested in telling people why, why you created your story, then self-publishing is 100% the way to go. And I think readers will pick up on that too. People like to connect. Connection's important now, especially that we're coming off of a pandemic. And I think people want to hear authors now more than ever, and they want to hear the story behind writing. I mean, your podcast is a really good example of that. I, I've enjoyed every episode I've listened to. It's really, really fun to hear people talk about what created their story. And, and I think that's a, that's a great service for people. Thank you. That's what we'd like to achieve. And we love to talk to authors about their experience and why they write what they write and how it came all about, actually. Yeah, I find that that part of writing really fascinating, too. I, I briefly had a podcast about traveling and authors and authors who used place as a character in their novels. It's a really fascinating thing to see why people fall in love with a, a particular city or town. And then they love it so much, they they feel compelled to write about it and becomes a character. There's a lot of authors that have done that. And I think like with great success. I was wondering about the feedback you got for your books. They are out now for a while now. And what would you say? What is the feed? What has been the feedback so far? You know, it's interesting. So with corporate tourists, I'm I'm further along than all the others, and I've gotten glowing reviews. Just couldn't say enough about the book. People love the tone. People love the characters. Read it like that. People said it was you know their pandemic book of choice because it was fun and funny and adventurous and. And then other people just silently give me a one-star review on Amazon. <laughs> 
And they don't really say why. So I think those can be marketing errors. People thought that they were going to get something Mm -hmm. out of the book that they didn't. You know, maybe not everybody is friendly with uh, having an LGBTQ character as, you know, an action hero. And and, uh, I think if you're not used to having somebody who's an amputee be a hero, then maybe that part of the book can be a little bit shocking for you. It's hard to say when you you get a one-star review what, what is actually created that, but it is a rite of passage for all self-published authors. So when you do get your first one-star review, you know that you've had enough reach that a total stranger has read your book and hated it. And then (laughs) you have to crack open a bottle of champagne and celebrate that you made it this far, uh, which is what I did. At least you read my book. Yes. Yes. Strangers have read my book and (laughs) taken time to hate on it publicly. That's the mark that you've arrived. So I couldn't have been more thrilled. And now that I'm at the that point in my career, uh, it's it's just up and up. <laughs> On your webpage, you also mentioned, uh, or there's also a section for nonfiction. How is that coming along, and what is it about? Yeah, so uh, I already mentioned the RightCon article. So that's uh, paired with when I when I shot my screenplay around about Book Midwife. I did want to tell the true story of actually encountering a book coach con artist at a at a certain point in my writing career, and that particular con artist also had dealings with with more famous writers, much, much more famous and successful than me. And so I wanted to to produce an article or a series of articles at that same time that cataloged this kind of this activity in the writing world and that, you know, really exposed the the path of of how writers can get easily taken in because they would do anything for their own stories and for their the vision of their own writing career. And, you know, I myself sustained the dream of writing a novel over two and a half decades. And uh, I really wanted to to talk to other people who did the same thing and who uh, got taken in by con artists along the way and then came out the other side and and published and and met success despite all all of that. And who, may I ask, is your, if you have any, role model as a writer? Oh, so many, so many. Uh, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, that's who I uh, always compare myself to because I also think it, it more, it adequately captures the tone of my novels. Kurt Vonnegut was my writing hero and, and one of the first authors that I just read everything I possibly could. Also Douglas Adams for the same reasons. I think it, it captures the kind of tone that I have. And when I f- discovered his books as a kid, I, I just couldn't have been more delighted and surprised by, by the way he told the story. Also, and at the same time that I was writing this, and I think you really see the influence in the book, not in the length of the sentences, but in the, in the tone and some of the content. Uh, David Foster Wallace, his Infinite Jest had just come out the year that I started writing this book, 1996. And so that w- he was a big writing hero of mine. And then also a later on hero, uh, Gary Steingart. He wrote Absurdistan and the Russian Debutante's Handbook. And he preceded me in, in New York City, but I, I wound up going through some of the Gotham Writers courses there with people who had been in workshops with him while he was trying to finish up his first book. And so so uh, I thought, you know, oh, I'm coming for you, Gary. I'm, I'm right <laughs> behind you in success. And uh, <laughs> maybe in the in another five years, I'll, I'll feel like I'm at that level. <laughs> and coming soon, it states on your page that there will be a survival book show. Yes, yes. I'm trying to uh, expand my multimedia empire with a, with a book tube. <laughs> so I was, um, it, it was in the middle of pandemic and I, I just, I was experiencing the worst attack 
attention deficit in my life in a lifetime of attention deficit. <laughs> I couldn't pay attention to anything and um, including books. So I was buying books, buying books, surrounding myself with them, stacks everywhere in the house, knocking them over, sleeping on them, not reading any of them. And so I finally, I got this book. I don't even remember how I found it. And it was called 438 Days by Jonathan Franklin. It's a true story of a man who, a deep sea fisherman who went adrift in a small boat for 438 days. And I couldn't put it down. I, I read it every single day until it was done. And it was just such a perfectly written book. And at that time, I was trying to get reviews for my own book. And so I knew how much I suffered trying to demand people <laughs> post reviews and how tough it is to get people to actually review. So I went online and I wrote a review for Jonathan Franklin right away uh, on Goodreads. And he wrote back to me and he said, thanks so much for this great review. Do you do you want to read a chapter of my, my next book and review it in advance? And so I thought, oh, I've arrived. A, a, <laughs> a famous author has talked to me. This is it. This is my moment. And so I wrote back to him right away, but there had been a lag. I hadn't been on Goodreads every day. And by the time I got back to him, you know, he'd probably already published the book and moved on with his life. So he didn't need me anymore. But I thought at that time that reviewing and and uh, and providing opinions about books uh, is, is just a really fun thing to do as an author. And especially for true stories, for, for survival stories, sometimes they're taught by the person that lived through it. And that provides a really different experience from somebody who's telling uh, another person's story like Jonathan Franklin did. But I, I just thought he did such a good job and, and that the genre is is a really interesting one to, to read as a fiction author, to think about how telling somebody else's personal story can can improve your own work. So that's that's where the birth of the show came. And uh, you'll you'll see it later on, Nick, this year. Okay, it's a YouTube show. Yeah, 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 it's a YouTube. It, it's a, yeah, it'll, it, I'm hoping to become part of the booktubers, the <laughs> close-knit community on YouTube that reviews books. I'm hoping they'll accept me as one of their own. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. Of course they will. You, you already mentioned you couldn't get into anything last year, but as a reader, what does a book need for you to get hooked? Is it plot or is it character or is it both? Oh, it's both. I, I've studied writing too much now and, and so I need the total package. I, I can't just be taken in a part of the way. I, it's, it's got to, unless it's got a real reputation. So like, here's an example. I started reading Duck's Newburyport. Have you have you read it or heard I'm of sorry, it? No. it? It won a lot of awards. It's a book from the perspective of a, a stay-at-home mom who, who has an inner monologue and that's that's what the book is it's one long sentence and so I started it and it was so difficult to internalize the woman's thoughts at first like just very uncomfortable because you actually do get the experience of being inside another person's head thinking their thoughts and uh, that's the really interesting part about writing is it's like the one way that you can really induce a psychic ability because you know what somebody's thoughts are from what they're writing on the page so at first it was so uncomfortable to take on the thoughts of this main character. I had this kind of like uh, itchy feeling where I, I felt uh, irritated because I, I was a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> and then at a certain point in the book, it becomes naturalized and you have no problem getting through it. But if it weren't for all the awards and knowing that the author was some kind of a genius wonder kind, I don't know if I would have made it that far. And and it's a, it's a really well-written book. Sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. What would be your 
advice to any aspiring author? Yeah, don't don't ever quit. Don't give up. It it doesn't really matter what you do along the way to advance, uh, as long as you feel that you're making progress. But if you don't set goals and meet them, if the, you're not writing, <laughs> if you're saying that you're writing and you're not, then you have to really look at your behavior and think about how you're going to pare down what you're doing so that you're doing what matters, which really is just advancing the writing. So when I think about when I started out and I, I didn't really know how to write a novel and I would take classes and kind of play around in the margins and write about writing the novel, but I wasn't writing the novel. It's it, You, you got to really get into it and really start to do it on a daily basis. And that's what creates the success. It's, it's the habit. It's the behaviors. And is there anything you would our listeners to know? Would, would you like them to know about your projects, about your past projects, about your upcoming projects? Is there anything? Yeah. So I think Make Them Pay and the short story Rats is a is a good entry point into the new espionage collection. And so I think stay tuned on that because there, there are going to be more stories coming out in the new espionage collection. But then on the horizon, what I'm working on now is a cozy culinary mystery series uh, about a, a protagonist who's uh, working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and solving food-adjacent murder mysteries. Oh, sounds intriguing. Food's always a good idea. Food and murder mystery? Yeah, yeah. Cozy culinary. And cozy. In, in, in cozy. Perfect. Yeah. Would be perfect for us. Okay, great. I'll send it to you when, when they're done. I'm also experimenting with a shorter form. So it's actually going to be three shorter stories, more of a, a short story novella hybrid. But then eventually I'll, I'll box them all together. And so it'll be like a trifecta of short form stories that are all following the same main character on her investigations into food murder mysteries. Ooh. And there's a coffee component too. Ooh. Yeah, that's yeah. Perfect for me. Chocolate? For her, chocolate for her and maybe okay. tea, tea component for her. Okay, for okay, I'll try. No. Yeah, I'll get it in there. Okay. It's not it's not written yet, so we'll, we're taking orders. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and get that in there. And then when you when you receive it, you'll know that's for you. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds promising, doesn't it? Teacup. It does. Thank you, Jay, for being our guest. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was fun it was. talking to you. And we learned well, a lot you. about climate fiction and new espionage. Well, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. I'll come back anytime. Yes. Good Great. to know. Wonderful. And have a nice weekend. Thanks. You too. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and we'll meet again at Book Lovers Companion.